Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. And we're from Car Stuff. We're the podcast that covers everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives. Adventures, thrills, chills, literally planes, trains, and automobiles. That's right. And you can find all of our episodes on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and really anywhere else you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Hi, I'm Noel. And I'm Ben. You are you. And if you are listening to this show, then hopefully you are not Teresita Bassa. We'll get to it. Today we're going to talk about crime. Every once in a while we do a show about uh, criminal behavior, whether that's financial corruption, whether that's a grisly series of unsolved murders. Um, But we're talking today not about a type of crime but a very specific crime, a tale of murder and on some level justice. Perhaps justice from beyond the grave, grave. Matt, how many times do I have to tell you I can do that in post? <laughs> you don't have to do your own effects. I know. I just like it. So our story begins in Chicago, 1977, with a 47-year-old respiratory therapist named Teresita Bassa. Now, now she was from the Philippines. She was uh, well-regarded by her neighbors. Her, her neighbors liked her. She was fluent in Tagalog. And she was employed at a place called the Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, which is at this time closed. On February 21st, 1977, firefighters arrived at Teresita's home, uh, which was apartment 15B on the 15th floor of 2740 North Pine Grove Avenue, where they discovered her corpse. Her corpse had been burned and likely defiled. A kitchen knife protruded. From her chest, it was uh, one of the knives that she had owned while she was alive. Someone had thrown a mattress on top of her and, you know, attempted to burn the evidence. As homicides go, this case was particularly horrific. There were no leads. And after a few months, the case went cold. And while this is unfortunate, it's also disturbingly common. You know, guys, let's pause for a second from this story and, and take a look at some of the statistics involving homicides so we can... Get a better get a better grasp of this. One of the things that we'll find when we look at statistics for murders, you know, identified homicides, is that there are a lot of qualifications and members of the same government sometimes don't always agree on the numbers. For example, the Bureau of Justice, which is an arm of the Department of Justice here in the U.S., has a nuanced definition, very precise definition of homicide. And that would include murder and non-negligent manslaughter, which is the willful killing of one human being by another. Right. But uh, the data is based solely on police investigation as opposed to the determination of a court or a medical examiner, a coroner, or another judicial body. So if there's a suspect death and then there's a trial later and they say, and the cops didn't think it was murder, but a jury does rule something that says that, then it still doesn't count. So it also excludes some deaths. 
And some of those are um, deaths caused by negligence, suicide or accident, uh, justifiable homicide. Seems like a misnomer since it actually has the word homicide in it. But I digress. And attempts of murder. Right. And justifiable – carries its own charge. Yeah. And justifiable homicides are based on law enforcement agency reports and that's a whole Mm -hmm. other episode. Uh, Interesting side note here. Deaths from the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001 are specifically not included in the analyses. And that's a – that's just an example of the sort of definition that we'll look at here. But – Good news because according to not just the Bureau of Justice but also to other reporting agencies, uh, despite what you might hear on your local mainstream news uh, and, and all the, the terrible things you'll hear on the radio, it turns out that murder is actually declining. Yeah, that is an extremely surprising thing to hear, uh, especially after these past couple of weeks of uh, the two conventions for our primary parties. There was a lot of – Scare, scare stuff going on, right? Mm-hmm. And then you look at the actual statistics and you see that the homicide rate in the U.S. has declined by nearly half, 49% from 9.3 homicides per 100,000 residents in 1992 to 4.7 out of 100,000 in 2011. That's the lowest level since 1963. Mm-hmm. But as we said, not all of the sources will agree. So if we look to the FBI, we find uh, their handy book, Crime in the United States. And uh, they, they found some interesting numbers from 2014. Yeah, they found that there were an estimated 1,165,383 violent crimes, uh, which would um, consist of murder and non-negligent homicides, rapes, robberies, and aggravated assaults. These statistics were culled from various law enforcement agencies. Right. And that's, that's pulling in a whole lot of Different crimes, right? Um, Mm. So yeah, like you said, Ben, when looking at these different sources that are trying to keep good statistics on all of this stuff and good numbers, it it gets muddy. Yeah, but but there's more here. Uh, Many of these homicides that occur do go unsolved. Sadly, Uh, we've got a great quote uh, from a 2015 article in The Economist on this. America's homicide clearance rate, the percentage of solved crimes that lead to arrest, has fallen considerably in the past 50 years from around 90% in 1965 to around 64% in 2012, according to federal statistics. This means more than 211,000 homicides committed since 1980 remain unsolved. Every year introduces nearly 5,000 more. So journey back with us, ladies and gentlemen, to Chicago in 1977. According to the sources you check, whether it's uh, maybe a compilation from the Tribune or a municipal compilation, you'll find that there were between 823 to 1,109 documented homicides in the city in that year alone. Uh, Teresita Basa was by all accounts set to remain a tragically unsolved crime, at least – that is, until her ghost returned and hunted down her murderer. But first, a word from our sponsor. (laughs) 
so we left you with a bit of a cliffhanger there. We mentioned that possibly the ghost of Teresita Bassa came back from the grave and got a little revenge. According to the story, several months after the murder, uh, the detective, Joe Statula, he received a lead from the Evanston Police Department nearby, and they instructed him to contact Dr. Jose Chua. Uh, seems random on, on the detective's end, like, okay, I guess we'll go see this person. Well, apparently, Jose Chua's wife, Remibios Remy Chua, claimed to be possessed by Teresita Bassa's spirit. Uh, that's that's a weird call to get, right? Sitting in the police department. <laughs> hey, you need to go talk to this lady. She's possessed by the spirit of your victim. So according to Dr. Chua, his wife had actually begun entering into these trances, these trance states. And while she was in them, she would speak and claim to be the ghost of Teresita Bassa. Yeah, according to the original Chicago Tribune stories that were written about this, he, he goes into detail about uh, laying on the bed and just speaking. And he was he would just go up to her and – I mean you can imagine going, what – are you doing as a doctor? Like you're going to be skeptical, right? What is happening to my wife? Right. That's, that's a reasonable thing. That's an assumption. Most of us would make. We do not naturally live in horror movies. <laughs> so Dr. Chua's wife or arguably the ghost of Teresita Bassa named the murderer, gave a name to this murderer. And that name was Alan Showery or Showery. And the doctor Still, you know, of course, was not convinced. These were not very specific things. Uh, so he still cautiously looked into it and turns out, according to the story, there was an Alan Shorey in Chicago. He was also an employee at Edgewater Hospital and it seemed that he had visited Teresita's home on the pretense of uh, repairing either a television set or an electrical problem. Additionally, the voice claimed that Showery had taken jewelry from the uh, deceased and given it to his girlfriend. Uh, the jewelry, the voice continued, could be identified by several individuals and it named those individuals. Despite the extraordinarily unorthodox nature of the lead, detectives found, yeah, there really was this Alan Showery yeah, working there. He's an orderly. Mm -hmm. He was a 32-year-old orderly. So they visited his home and they found that he did have a girlfriend and he lived with her. And upon investigation, they found Bassa's jewelry in the possession of this girlfriend. So Alan Showery was arrested on August 11th. So initially, Showery confessed, but then he recanted his confession saying he was coerced into confessing because of police threats to jail his pregnant common-law wife as an accessory. And this means that the first attempt at conviction ended in a mistrial. But eventually he was convicted and he was sentenced to I think 14 years for the murder itself and then a couple other consecutive sentences of four years for the murder, arson and robbery. It was, it was nearly 20 years altogether. Right. He served less than five of that and was released in 1983, which means, Mr. Shorey, you may well be listening to this podcast today. And if you are, I would love some clarity on this because everything we've researched on this, you know, it's, it's images of papers from the 1970s. It's people in the 1990s talking about the unsolved mysteries 
you know, uh, movie that came out. There was an Unsolved Mysteries movie that came out about this case. Uh, we'd love to hear directly from you if you're listening. A case of possession, if that is the story is true. Uh, as Matt mentioned earlier, the original reports come from the Chicago Re- Tribune, which is, uh, which is a respected paper, but the story itself has several holes. First, Remedio Chua was also an employee at the hospital and may have used the claim of possession as sort of a safety net to bring Showery to justice. Um, this is a biggie because it's very, very plausible that Chua had other information that was not made available to law enforcement. Through official channels. Exactly. Right? Yeah. She also, though, like Teresita, spoke to Golog. And, and this, this to me is fairly plausible, this idea that somehow or another Miss Chua had information about what had happened. Maybe she had been speaking um, with Miss Bassa about who knows whatever was going on between the two, Alan Showery and Teresita Bassa, and knew something that she wanted to get justice, but she didn't know how to do it, and she was afraid maybe of this guy. I, I'm, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, not that I am poo-pooing the idea that she was actually possessed. I don't know. I have no evidence either way of this, but that makes sense to me. And there's also another option here that the police may have assisted in fabricating this story or at least played along with it in order to obtain what they needed to to make the arrest. Mm -hmm. So in the case of catching a murderer, could we blame them for bending the circumstances a bit? Because it is quite possible, unfortunately, in the legal system, it's quite possible to have inadmissible proof that someone committed a crime and because the proof is inadmissible, be unable to uh, prosecute them or bring justice for the family, right? Or yeah, for the knowing victims. for sure, but you can't do anything. And this goes into a, a larger concept here too, psychic powers applied to law enforcement. It, in itself, it's problematic because we've always seen the tropes. We've always heard the stories of um, claimed success, right, where there's a cold case uh, and often something grisly if it's fiction like a child murderer or whatnot and a medium or a psychic is able to, based on their impressions, arrive at information that could not be found any other way. But are they doing this or are they just confirming stuff investigators already knew but was somehow inadmissible, you know? Yeah. In the case of Teresita Bassa, it does seem that justice was ultimately served. Uh, The killer was legally convicted. We can call him a killer. Uh, But was this by a ghost or was this by bending the rules of an investigation a la, you know, the – The Shield or The Wire or any of those other crime shows? Yeah. Um, It it feels like a slippery slope to me. I I haven't heard – I can't think in my head of a case that used a psychic to get a conviction in the recent past. And maybe that's just because I'm not looking for it. You know, I haven't seen it pop up on any of my news threads that I subscribe to. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that's it. Um, I can't imagine that it's happening with much frequency. That's an excellent point. And this brings us to another thing. Uh, For those of you listening who are involved in law enforcement, I'd like to hear your your thoughts on this. Uh, There's a phenomenon that I've heard occurs, which is that sometimes when 
a crime or the hunt for a criminal gets too much recognition in the public, precincts become inundated with people who are alleging that they have inside knowledge of it or Mm -hmm. that they committed the crime or that they have received information about the crime in a dream Mm. or in a trance or some spiritual revelation. And this, you know, this is depicted sometimes in fiction, but it does actually happen, maybe not all that often, but it has happened. So we'd love to hear some real stories about those kind of experiences and most importantly, of course, if uh, there was something you couldn't explain, if somebody really mm-hmm. did have something that seemed to be ESP that assisted in the cracking of a case. And it doesn't have to be homicide, of course. Uh, it could be, you know, stolen goods. Yeah, anything. Or if you you worked with a psychic or a medium and nothing came of it or the information was wrong. I, I'd love to hear either way. And, of course, every time that we ask for uh, the best part of this show, which is your stories, your emails, your ideas for future topics, we like to show and prove that it's not all just a, a bunch of malarkey, which means it's almost time for Shout Out Corner. Today's first shout-out goes to Ned Kelly's Revenge from Twitter. Just listen to your political conspiracy episode, and half of that episode is now fact. You guys have to be psychic or Nostradamus 2.0 or something. This I love this uh, this tweet because it's shortened all of the letters. It's letters and numbers and not actual words for most of it because you had to shorten it. I, I love it. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, writing to us on Twitter. I, you know, that I was initially hesitant about that one because uh, talking about politics on the internet, which I would count a podcast as as well, can so quickly become incredibly unproductive. So uh, I, I, for one, am really glad that you found it worth your time. And thanks so much for checking out the show. The next shout out goes to Alex Willits, who wrote to us on Facebook. Uh, Alex wants us to cover some more unsolved crime topics. He's interested specifically in Cropsy, which isn't really an unsolved crime topic. It's it's a legend. It's an urban legend, but it's still fascinating. Yeah, there's a there's a great documentary on Cropsy um, that I I think one of you guys may have turned me on to. But uh, how how great your timing is, Alex. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed today's episode on Teresita. Basa. And our last shout out for this episode comes from Christopher Rogers, who says, can you delve into the topic of water? The local and state governments make farmers in my region pay tax on the water that falls into their dams and creeks. The bloody state housing authority has stopped installing rainwater tanks onto state housing because rainwater is dangerous. Why does it seem like someone wants control over the water supply? And what authority do they have to make me pay for this stuff when it falls from the sky? You know, that's a question we've heard before, and it's mm-hmm. still a good one. Christopher's from Australia. I don't know exactly what region he's from, but that is fascinating, and he wants us to cover water. I'm down. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great idea. We did an earlier series on water wars, and we also looked at contamination there in Flint, Michigan. So this concludes our... We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about the case of Teresita Bassa, 
head on over to archives.chicagotribune.com. And you can do a search for Teresita Bassa. You can do a search for some of the dates that we talked about in the episode. And you can find copies of the actual original reports, the physical papers that came out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and really kind of follow the paper trail, which is what we did to make this episode. I would say it's exciting, and it really gets your mind going. You can find an article from 2000 in the Weekly World News, which is something our coworker Josh Clark has talked about before a publication about some of the um, less than reputable things you'll find in that publication. But in this story, it talks specifically about about Remy Chua's actions while she was at work. Uh, and, you know, take them with a grain of salt if you want, but it talks about how she would sit at the same place at the lunch table where, where everyone would gather to have lunch there at the hospital. She would sit in the same place that Teresita Bossa used to sit, and she would sing quietly to herself the way Miss Bossa would do. And this was all leading up to the stories of, that her husband was giving about her going into trances on their bed at home. And, you know, it's fascinating to read this stuff. It reads like a Hollywood film. And, you know, perhaps there's a reason for that. Or perhaps it's true and it's just hard to imagine. And I would want to also ask for uh, people to don't don't feel like you can't write to us just because you're not uh, you're not a member of law enforcement. People run into allegations of psychic activity all the time and many of us listening or even creating shows like this or investigations like this do so because we have found things that we cannot at this point explain. And it may be just as presumptuous to make the mistakes a lot of people who I guess confuse themselves for skeptics make by uh, automatically saying that you know something is because something is strange or currently inexplicable, that it's automatically bunk. With this, with this case, there's not any, there's not any case I could find in my research of Teresita Bassa, um, or excuse me, Remy Chua being investigated or tested for any kind of extrasensory perception or so on. And the truth of the matter is that had that testing occurred and produced some sort of statistically significant result, then we probably would have heard of it. And you probably would have heard of this case before. Still, ultimately, and this is only my opinion here, the most important thing is that the killer was apprehended. And finding the real murderer, instead of someone who's falsely convicted, or instead of just someone who gets away, is is something that is... Um, extremely important and I'm not you know at all condoning bending the rules of the law although I'm sure statistically that happens as well you know Ben I I can't agree with you more and I to kind of give some context with this case I'm going to read a quote that comes from the Chicago Tribune it says we asked detective Statula who broke the case if he believed the Chuas he said quote I would not call anyone a liar if they had said they heard a voice from God, I would listen. It would be wrong for me to cut off an informant. I talked to pimps, prostitutes, drug addicts in the Belmont area. Dr. and Mrs. Chua are educated, intelligent people who live in a $90,000 house. It's a distinct change for me. I wanted information on this murder. I listened and acted on what they told me. 
We went after Alan Showery. The case was wrapped up within three hours, end quote. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We would like to hear your stories. If you have similar stories of experiences like this in law enforcement or not in law enforcement, uh, in any kind of forensic investigation, uh, maybe any uh, thing you encountered that you thought was just beyond the bounds of rational explanation. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook where we are Conspiracy Stuff. You can find us on Instagram where we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. You can also find every other audio podcast we have ever done in the history of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know on, you guessed it, StuffTheyDon'tWantYouToKnow.com. I had to take a breath before that one. (laughs) But wait, you might be saying, what do I do if I don't go on social media stuff? And I've already heard all your audio podcasts. I have an idea for one that would be the best. and My fellow listeners should hear it. How do I talk to you guys? You just shoot us an email, a good old-fashioned one, to conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. 